Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Tom Woldrich. Tom Woldridge is chair in the Department of Psychology at Golden Gate University, as well as a psychoanalyst and board-certified licensed psychologist. He's published several books and numerous articles and chapters on topics such as eating disorders, masculinity, technology, and psychoanalytic treatment. His most recent book is Eating Disorders, a Contemporary Introduction, published by Routledge. He's on the Scientific Advisory Council and the National Eating Disorders Association, faculty at the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California and the Northern California Society for Psychoanalytic Psychology, an assistant clinical professor at UCSF's medical school, and has a private practice in Berkeley, California. Dr. Woldridge will be discussing how psychoanalysts understand narcissism and how we imagine and experience the impact of consumer technology on our understandings of ourselves. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. So narcissism is a term that's used frequently in conversation these days among lay people. People will often refer to others as narcissists or refer to themselves as being narcissistic. Psychoanalysts have a very particular and nuanced understanding of narcissism, though. Can you say a little bit about how you understand narcissism? Sure, I'll do my best. So, you know, I think for the general public, somebody who's narcissistic is grandiose, arrogant, or entitled. And, you know, psychoanalysis over its history has had different ways of understanding the phenomenon of narcissism. So just to give a few examples, Freud in 1914 published a famous paper called On Narcissism. And in that paper, he, he put forward a very complicated and multifaceted way of thinking about narcissism psychologically. Then in the 70s and 80s, there were two figures, Kohut and Kernberg who had a fierce and publicized debate about the nature of narcissism. So just in very brief terms, Kohut thought of narcissistic pathology as the end product of parents' unsuccessful attempts to negotiate the child's developmental needs. He talked about those needs in terms of mirroring and idealization and twinship. So for him, narcissism is a kind of developmental arrest that it results from a mismatch in the child's normal narcissistic needs and the environment's ability to respond to them. Kernberg had a very different understanding. He saw narcissism as stemming from early oral frustration and accompanying rage. So for him, some patients or some people are endowed with more aggressive drive than others and their ability to manage aggression in the face of frustration, it leads them to develop a narcissistic structure. So. It's almost in the realm of what today we might think of as a temperamental vulnerability. So since that time, you know, other analysts have put forward different theories, competing theories, complementary theories. I think from a contemporary psychoanalytic perspective, it's useful to think of narcissism 
just simply as having to do with the regulation of self-esteem. So, you know, as we grow up, we all struggle with insults to our self-esteem and we look to others to help us develop the internal resources to regulate our self-esteem successfully. And even when all goes well in early development, or at least well enough, you know, we're social creatures. So even in adulthood, we look to others to some degree to maintain our narcissistic equilibrium. So we can speak of people who have narcissistic pathologies, narcissistic psychologies, as particularly struggling with the regulation of self-esteem. Hmm. So that's really interesting. So there's a continuum and a kind of regulatory process that you're thinking about here. So we all are somewhat narcissistic is essentially, I think, what you're saying, but it can become pathological or problematic if it's extreme. Can you say something about the problems or, or the pathologies or the extreme cases or what people can experience in difficulties with regulating self-esteem? Sure. I think you're exactly right. We all contend with the challenge of maintaining narcissistic equilibrium or regulating our self-esteem. I think we can think of people that have narcissistic psychologies or narcissistic character structures as particularly struggling with that challenge. And these people are, in some fundamental sense, fighting against feelings of internal emptiness and shame. Those feelings of internal emptiness and shame, they stem from earlier experiences in their psychological development. Maybe we can also think about different types of people that have narcissistic character structures. So I think some people are drowning in a kind of bad self-feeling. And that's often been referred to as deflated narcissism or vulnerable narcissism. Whereas other people, they defend against that bad self-feeling through the construction of a grandiose self. So these are the people that are more likely to seem grandiose and arrogant and entitled. And I think they align more easily with the public's, the lay public's understanding of the term narcissism. And then some people fluctuate between those two states, you know, sometimes grandiose, sometimes deflated. I think in all narcissistic psychologies, there are feelings of shame, humiliation, envy, the wish for revenge. And those feelings may be more or less defended against. They may be more or less conscious. Idealization and devaluation are going to be prominent defenses. And relationships with other people are going to be shaped by the person's struggle with self-esteem regulation. So, for example, there may be a tendency to treat other people as an audience. Because the painful experiences in earlier development had something to do with how the child was perceived by other people, often the parents, a pressing question for people with narcissistic psychologies is, how am I being seen right now? What's problematic about all this is that the internal struggle derails emotional development in one way or another. It can make it difficult to invest energies into important developmental tasks and to relate to other people as separate individuals with their own needs, wishes, and desires. So I'm thinking about that question, how am I being seen right now against the backdrop of ubiquitous technology use? And I'm just thinking about all the ways in which being seen is now different than perhaps it was 30 years ago or something. Can you say a little bit about how we imagine as analysts, consumer technology might either support or hinder the healthy development of the self with these kinds of 
self-esteem regulation kinds of concerns for people who either have narcissistic tendencies or character structures, or even the everyday person who is then besieged with how am I being seen as it's reflected back in social media or in any number, you know, TikTok, how are others seen when they are idealized or, you know, really successful in these kinds of things? I think there's a lot of how am I being seen and how am I seeing others that comes to the fore in a unique way. Say a little bit about that. Are they making us more narcissistic? (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely agree with you about technology tapping into our narcissistic vulnerabilities. No, I don't know if we're becoming more narcissistic. There are people that say we're living in a narcissism epidemic and you know whether they're correct, I don't know. I guess that's an empirical question and I don't have the data to answer it. But you know, I think from a theoretical perspective, certain technological phenomena, so you know, social media and selfies, for example, they can tap into our narcissistic vulnerabilities. As social creatures, we we all contend with this challenge of regulating self-esteem. And these technologies, they center on crafting presentations of ourselves for others to view and to evaluate. They leverage our wish to be seen as desirable or admirable or even enviable. And at the same time, we're confronted with other people's self-presentations and inevitably we compare ourselves to them consciously or unconsciously. So all that I think can potentially dysregulate our self-esteem. It can feel like a a kind of narcissistic challenge or even an insult. Mm -hmm. So I think an interesting question is what supports our ability to engage with these technologies in a creative way instead of in a way that furthers our own insecurities and vulnerabilities? So, you know, in my own practice, I've seen young people experiment with their own online self-presentation. They know more about this than I do usually, but, you know, using filters for their selfies or TikTok videos. And and this kind of experimentation, experimentation with self-presentation can be enlivening and playful and can allow them to experiment with identity. And I've also seen, you know, young people use technology as a means of affiliation, social affiliation and engagement that otherwise feels inaccessible to them. And, And I've even seen that for some that kind of engagement can be a stepping stone to engagement with people in the real physical world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the question is why are some people able to use technology in that way, whereas others become ensnared in more destructive ways of relating to it? So I think, you know, obviously those who are more secure in their self-esteem for whatever reason stand a better chance of being able to, you know, engage creatively with these platforms But I don't think that's the whole story. I've seen people with significant vulnerabilities nonetheless make creative use of technology. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a lot more that we need to understand here. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the role of attention in all of this, sort of the idea that those who have the capacity to reflect on their technology use or those who can pay attention to multiple different kinds of perspectives maybe stand a better chance of reflecting on all of these issues and making some choices that are creative than others who get ensnared, as you say, where it's kind of knee-jerk, I'm just going to continue, I'm going to respond to this in whatever way I feel in the moment impulsively, like I should. What do you think about the role of attention? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting one. There's a lot here that, you know, I'm not the most sort of qualified to speak about, but my lay understanding of technology and social media, for example, 
is that it's, you know, it's very much designed to be habit forming and to pull us into inattentive ways of relating to it, to mm-hmm. kind of further our engagement with it. And so I think, you know, even the most evolved among us are <laughs> challenged with, you know, how can we insert moments of reflection and thought and deliberation in that kind of engagement? It's hard because it pulls on something that's very fundamental in our constitutions. Mm-hmm. I want to open up this idea of enlivening and creative use of self-presentation. And I want to think more about the destructive aspects too, because sometimes I get a little preoccupied with the ways in which the feedback that one gets for any kind of online activity gets integrated into the self. And I wonder if you think that's different than face-to-face feedback that one might integrate in the real world. Or is there something that we gain or something that we lose in this kind of bi-directional interactions that happen that might be filtered, that might include curated pieces of oneself and one's audience. I mean, even this podcast, we're going to edit this actually, and it's going to be a curated version of our conversation. And our listeners are going to you know, respond to that instead of the raw conversation. Are we losing something maybe through editing or curating how we present? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. You know, clearly we're gaining something by curating content in that way. You know, the listeners get, you know, hopefully a more kind of polished presentation of our conversation. I like to think that's nicer, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what we're hoping for. You know, the things that are exchanged between us or the things that I say that don't make sense can be, you know, hopefully edited out. So, you know, hopefully people are left with something that's, you know, more useful to them. But at the same time, right, we're removing some of the the messiness of human conversation, some of the flaws that I bring to the conversation, you know, with you, some of the moments that I misspeak or, you know, can't gather my ideas quickly. So it, it does, in a way, present a kind of idealized version of our conversation. Mm-hmm. So the more that we encounter, you know, idealized content, it can really skew our evaluation of what's good enough. So that's one direction my thinking goes. And, and you know, then in another, to get back to your earlier point about how people are impacted by online content versus, you know, face-to-face conversation. I think that in many forms of online engagement, you know, you're left relating less to the person that you're interacting with and more to your own projections in relation to them. So if you think about something like text message, you know, text messages get exchanged. So much of what you imagine is just that. It's an imagination. You know, what is the tone with which these words are being communicated? What's the facial expression of the sender? Are they a friend or an adversary? You know, we're filling in the blanks there because we don't have the information we would have in a face-to-face conversation. So in some ways, we're left relating more to our internal worlds and perhaps therefore more prone to a certain kind of emotional injury or dysregulation. Uh Uh-huh. That's a really interesting idea. I think that's very important. So I want to explore this a little bit more with you with some of the work that you've done clinically. And you've written some really interesting articles describing clinical cases that include the use of technology to facilitate therapeutic process. 
by helping patients to have some creative control over how they're seen so that you can provide for a, a more productive exchange and really deepen the work and help them. Can you say a little bit about these examples? What does it mean for us to think about the creative use of technology inside of psychoanalysis? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as I look back over those two articles that you're referring to, they both focus on the ways that technology and online spaces can serve either as a retreat from painful aspects of reality or as a creative space with that creativity facilitated to some degree by the way that the technology temporarily shields us from painful aspects of reality. In psychoanalytic jargon, you can either find yourself in a psychic retreat or in a potential space. You know, this is not my idea. I'm taking this idea from other theorists, other writers who've even looked at technology in this way. I'm applying it, though, to specific phenomena. So in one of them, which I think was my first, it was about a specific case, a case of a young man of short stature, what's commonly referred to as dwarfism. And he had you know, understandably terrible shame in relation to his physical differences. And I noticed, you know, this was, gosh, 10 years ago now, I noticed that when we met online, I think it was by Skype, it was before we all started using Zoom, that he began to spontaneously manipulate the camera so that at times I had no image of him at all. And at others, it was only a partial image. And some of the time, this seemed to lead us to an experience of relational disconnection. It felt like we just we weren't together in that moment. But at others, I noticed it, it allowed him to speak more freely. And as treatment progressed, it became clear that he really felt that being seen by me was humiliating. Hmm. And with the online platform, he was able to control when and how he was seen. And over time, it seemed that really facilitated his ability to be able to increasingly tolerate and to reflect on the experience of being seen by me. So, you know, in this example, he's able to titrate the experience of being seen because he has control over how much he's seen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's hard to draw broad conclusions from a single case study. I think what it did for me is it, it generated an openness to the possibility that online psychotherapy might offer particular kinds of experiences that are less easily accessed in person. And, you know, I think my experience during COVID working with a lot of people online has to some degree borne that out. You know, as you're talking, I think there's a tremendous amount of sensitivity that you've brought to this particular case where you really had an understanding of how much this person could bear and what could be on the leading edge of that and how the titration was working, because it could very easily work as an avoidance technique, or it's similarly, if one isn't sensitive to what's happening with the patient or the client, then it, it can really become a problem. And I guess I'm thinking about that with teleanalysis, and I'm wondering, or, te or telepsychotherapy, what do you think it requires of the clinician in terms of thinking about sensitively how we decide to enter into tech-mediated spaces with our patients, why and how we titrate or move through those, or if we move through those toward more in-person engagement. What are your thoughts there? It seems like it, it requires a tremendous amount of sensitivity on our part. Yeah, I think a tremendous amount of sensitivity and a real tolerance for ambiguity, because this question of titration or are we avoiding something or are we 
working at the edge of what's tolerable. It can be very hard to discern the difference. And often you can only tell in retrospect after you've seen how things evolved from that point forward. Mm-hmm. You know, my sense is what's required is tolerance for ambiguity and openness to possibility and, you know, a clear, to the degree that it can be, case formulation. You know, who is this person? What is their psychology? How are they relating to me? What are their, what's their aspiration for the treatment? All that should inform the mode of interaction. If somebody is terribly socially anxious, then for sure, phone psychotherapy may be the beginning and a way to build some scaffolding to facilitate in-person sessions. But it's hard for me to see how remaining on the phone indefinitely would be you know, moving towards the therapeutic agenda. Mm-hmm. I really happen to agree with what you're saying. I think there's a way in which COVID allowed us all to experience teleanalysis, whether we were inclined to do so or not. And in having to offer all of our patients, you know, phone or Zoom or some tech-mediated space, we kind of quickly realize that there's a lot to think about here. So I really appreciate what you're saying about the context and the, the individual psychology and the case formulation being really important to thinking through what is the best medium. Seems important. Yeah, and maybe the last thing I'd I'd just add to that is working on the phone, you know, with many of my patients working by phone, you know, during COVID, it's become really clear to me that people vary vastly in their ability to, you know, make a kind of enlivened connection with another person. And, you know, at one level, of course, we all knew that. But I think the phone has a way of really highlighting that. You know, there are some people that come onto the phone, the conversation starts, and it really feels like, hey, we're, we're together here. Mm-hmm. There are other people that it felt and continues to feel like such a challenge to reach and maintain a connection with. For some people, it's felt necessary to switch to Zoom or something that has video because the connection is just too hard to maintain by phone. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that also that some people prefer to switch from Zoom to phone. Mm-hmm because the video is distracting or because they have, you know, anxieties about using tech or what have you, or the two dimensions are preoccupying or for a lot of reasons. It's a really fascinating moment to think through all of these different issues with with telehealth. I agree. You wrote another interesting article that involves an online forum. It's a pro-Anna forum. And you wrote about this from a really interesting perspective. Most clinicians are super critical of these kind of forums, of course, because they promote anorexia. You make the argument that these can also be viewed as potential spaces, which for the lay listener is a psychoanalytic concept that means it really allows for some openness for creativity and so on and thinking. I think this kind of argument could apply to all technologies like violent video games or rape porn or a lot of other things that are generally in polite discourse hated, not only by clinicians, but a lot of people and are kind of, you know, representative of the underbelly of the online world. Can you say a little bit about the tension between potential space and these kinds of forums in particular, as you wrote about it in this paper, and any criticisms you might have about spaces, which also model problematic behaviors? Yeah, I I appreciate the question. You know, this was one of the first articles I wrote, you know, as I was sort of getting off the ground as a writer and it certainly got me some criticism from different clinicians. 
And, you know, I think clinicians who work with eating disorders, they're right to be critical of these forums, these so-called pro-anorexia, pro-ana, pro-mia forums. They're right to be critical of them. They are dangerous and they draw young people into a world that we'd wish for them to never encounter. And yet, as a clinician, I have to acknowledge that the fact is that young people do find their way into these forums. Even when we're talking with their parents about the need for supervision around online engagement, even when we're talking with parents about restricting access to certain forms of technology, it's not always as simple clinically as saying, don't do that. We may need to, at least for a time, meet people where they are and understand what they're deriving from participation before we intervene. None of this, of course, is intended to convey that we should not also act to protect young people. So it seems important to me to understand what's really happening in these forums, which is what led to our qualitative analysis of forum content. So, you know, we looked at many, many, many different forums and many posts and did a qualitative analysis and extracted certain themes. And we found that there were instances where young people seemed to, at times, make productive use of these forums. And my understanding is that in a similar way to the case just described, these forums provide people with a protected space that may, in some instances, put painful realities at just enough distance to allow for a degree of creative self-reflection. So at times, also, people use them as a psychic retreat, a more complete and pathological escape from relatedness and engagement with reality. So, you know, there's a tremendous stigma around anorexia and eating disorders and parents and providers are really alarmed that a child usually is ill and very quickly take the position that eating disorders are bad and need to be gotten rid of. And of course they do, you know, nobody should suffer in that way. But it often creates an adversarial relation with the young person that's suffering from the eating disorder. And I think that is the motivation for many of them to seek out a kind of protected space where they feel they can speak their emotional truth without being judged. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's probably true that you could apply this theoretical frame to many different kinds of technologies. But it's also probably true that some technologies are more likely to lean in one direction or another the direction of potential space or psychic retreat. So, you know, since publishing this article, I've heard from people who have read it, it eventually got reworked and published in a, in a magazine that was, you know, more widely distributed. And I've heard from people that, you know, found their way into online forums. And just to be clear, there are different kinds of online forums. So there are some that are purely pro-anorexia, and then there are others that are agnostic about, you know, whether you should recover or shouldn't. But I've heard from people that found their way into those forums and, and actually did use the people they met there as supports to engage in recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, when they read my article, they felt it very much got to the truth of their experience. I think you're speaking to something that's really important about technology, this business of supervising online engagement or restricting access to information or forums or video games or porn or what have you is problematic in a bunch of different ways, in part because we can't actually supervise any of this if we wanted to. I think young people are very good at getting around any kind of controls. I've heard of cases where 
you know, kids at school will set up their own virtual private network in order to look at websites that are not allowed, some of which are educational and interesting, and some of which are white supremacist or, you know, rape porn or what have you. So it can be really dicey and problematic just from a pragmatic perspective. Like, is it possible to regulate any of this? And so in some ways, as clinicians, we're left with, okay, well, if it's not possible to regulate, maybe we lean in and invite it into our consulting rooms and invite it to be explored as a potential space, hopefully, so that it's not siloed off and and secret and underground and turned into a psychic retreat. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably, you know, more to think about there because clearly, you know, regulation and supervision, we wouldn't want to do away with those things. You know, children need parents who are looking and protective Mm -hmm. and, you know, at the same time, as clinicians, we're wanting to help people open up and access their inner worlds. And, you know, clearly there's a place for being protective and concerned, but there's a fine line between that and something that forecloses and shuts down exploration that could ultimately allow the person to develop their own ability to regulate their engagement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I agree with you about parents needing to regulate or or needing to monitor and protect. And yet there's this divide that I notice sometimes between the generations. There are folks who are in their 70s and 80s who type with one finger on their phone, you know, as they make a text message, and they're a lot slower to take up new apps and technologies. There are people in my generation, I'm Gen X, who, you know, are fluent with texting and email and so on, but we certainly aren't on TikTok in in droves. And then there are young people who really have a different kind of experience with tech. And sometimes parents aren't well equipped to be able to understand how to observe and protect because their technology literacy is so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it can be tough. And maybe even the same is true for clinicians. When we hear these stories, we don't always know what they mean. I mean, luckily, you were able to integrate some of these technological issues into your practice, but I don't know if all of us can. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So do you have any words of advice on how we might better relate to our consumer technologies to preserve and improve the quality of our relationship with ourselves and others? I wish I had more wisdom to offer here than I do. I think, you know, like almost everybody, I struggle with this on a personal level. I grew up just fascinated by computers and technology, you know, in some ways, I'm kind of bridging the divide. I was very enamored with computers and, you know, even the early internet in my childhood, you know, it was all very slow kind of dial up modems, bulletin boards, but there was interaction with other people. And I was, you know, I was very familiar with that online world and found it to be very intriguing. You know, now fast forwarding through the decades, I have a kind of nostalgia for the days before cell phones and email. It's so challenging to relate to these technologies intentionally because, you know, like I said earlier, they're designed to draw us into them in a repetitive and deadening way. So I think there's, you know, much that we as individuals can do and as a larger community that we need to reflect on. I guess if I had one word of advice, and it's probably also advice I need to give to myself, you know, I think there's value in intentional reflection about how technology is functioning for each of us 
you know, in each particular moment or each particular day of the week, whether it's personally or with our patients or at work. That seems like sound advice. I sometimes find myself longing for a healthier version of a cell phone that comes preloaded with only a few apps and allows me to explore the internet, but gives me reminders and messages when I'm needing mm-hmm. to reflect or, or slow down or something. I would love for somebody to make that because I don't have the tech savviness to be able to actually get rid of the apps on my device and kind of configure it the way I, I think I'm, I might like. So I feel a little bit enslaved, but I don't want to give up my cell phone, but I also don't want it the way it's configured. Right, it's a funny, right. funny dilemma. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I know you're working on a new book. Is there anything you'd like to share about that particular project and its importance with our listeners or anything else we've talked about today? Sure. So, you know, my latest book actually just came out. It's uh, Eating Disorders, A Contemporary Introduction. And It's a short volume that brings together the work I've been doing on eating disorders from a psychoanalytic perspective over the past 10 years. You know, I'm happy that it's finally out in the world because it's the first place I've been able to uh, bring together disparate threads of my thinking about eating disorders. I think that's the main thing. You know, I'm on the internet and you can find me at tomwoldridge.com. And, you know, I hope this conversation is useful to listeners. I do too. So we've been speaking with Dr. Tom Woldridge. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your work with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next month, we'll be speaking with Professor Jan Abram, who will discuss Winnicott's theories of play as applied to video games. Please join us on Technology in the Mind, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.